All right, welcome to TYT Interviews. Great interview for you guys today. It's about the book New Power How Power Works in Our Hyperconnected World and How to Make It Work for You. Uh, difference between new power and old power, really interesting. Joining us are the authors of that book, Jeremy Hymans and Henry Timms. Uh, thank you guys for uh, coming out uh, today. Really appreciate it. Great to, Great be, to here. be here. Okay, uh, I should let everybody know before we get started that Jeremy uh, is the co founder and CEO of Purpose. Uh, he also co founded Get Up, an Australian political organization. He's co-founder of the global campaign uh, campaigning organization Avaz, the LGBT rights platform All Out. Uh, is there anything he hasn't co-founded? I'm not quite sure. Uh, and and Henry is the executive director of 92nd Street Y and a visiting fellow at Stanford University Center for Philanthropy and Civil Society. All right, that's a lot. Um, so let's get started on the book because uh, I'm fascinated by this topic. Uh, Guys, can you explain what the difference between new power and old power is for people who haven't heard about it at all? Well, yeah, I mean, it's great to be here. Think of the difference for a moment between Harvey Weinstein and the Me Too movement. So think about the way those two people exercise power. So Harvey thinks of power as a currency, something that you hoard, and over decades he spent that power to reward uh, his friends, to punish enemies, uh, and to kind of build this elaborate hierarchy that he sat on top of. And that now consider what kind of power helped to topple him. And that really was the Me Too movement. And the Me Too movement works fundamentally differently. And so new power is really this ability to harness the energy of a connected crowd. And so you think about the way the Me Too movement worked, it surged like a current across the world. No one could really hoard that power. There are many leaders. It began with Toronto Burke. But the strength of that movement is the many leaders that it has. And it sort of changes shape as it surges across geographies and across industries. So you talk about harnessing new power, but is that really possible? Like if you set out to harness new power, could you? Because I think that a lot of people have this perception that it's almost random. You don't know what's going to go viral, why it goes viral, how it goes viral. Is that really true or could you actually break it down? You know, I think one of the stories of some of the most powerful actors of our age is there people who have worked out how to harness new power? So just think about Facebook, which is in the news right now. Facebook has done this amazing job of creating this new power machine, which has kind of got billions of people participating and engaged and collaborating on a daily basis. But the big question of our age is, are the new power platforms that we use, like Facebook, actually promoting new power values around collaboration? Or is what's really happening that we're all getting trapped on these kind of participation farms? where we all participate and somebody else gets powerful? Uh, well, that's a good question. <laughs> well, right now, certainly Facebook and Google have the power and Amazon uh, as well. So, but if you're not a gigantic company like Facebook and you want to harness new power for a positive movement, for example, how in the world would you do it? Well, that's really what we break down in the book. So, you know, the book is focused, you know, to your point about how ordinary people can spread their ideas more effectively, can build movements, can lead in this world of like chaos and crowds. So, you know, for example, on spreading ideas, you know, there are characteristics of spreading ideas today that are so different to the way you did in the 20th century. So we tell the story in the book of a young Scottish schoolgirl called Aksa Mahmoud. And this is a bit of a sobering story, but she effectively became one of ISIS's most effective recruiters of girls from, uh, from the West. Uh, she was a Scottish schoolgirl. She moved over to ISIS, and we studied her techniques. And she created this 
intimate girl-to-girl network with emojis, with memes, that was kind of perfectly adapted for getting a young girl from the West to join ISIS. And we contrast that with the kind of old power response of the US government, where, you know, when they began the propaganda war against ISIS, they just sort of scramble an F-16 fighter jet and start raining leaflets down on civilian populations. And then when they finally decide to use social media, you know, they do it in this old power way. A point we make is you can use new technologies, but it's really about the way you use them. When the US government used them, they created a Twitter account called Think Again, Turn Away, designed to dissuade potential jihadists with the seal of the U.S. State Department as the profile picture. Yeah, that'll work. Um, <laughs> it's amazing how clueless they are. I can't believe in the year 2018 we're dropping leaflets. Um, a very world war of us. Um, anyway, so let's talk about a case of a, of a business. You, you guys write about Lego and, and how that company used new power to escape bankruptcy and transform their company. Super interesting. How? Yeah, so Lego is a really interesting story. They, they, you know, about a decade ago, they were on the the verge of bankruptcy. That they had, you know, decades of success, but they'd overextended themselves. Too many wristwatches, too many theme parks. They brought in a new CEO, and and he started to travel around the world and and meet what we uh, learned were called the Affols, the adult fans of Lego. And these were were were, were there, may, there may be some viewers who are who are affles. Maybe many. Feel I, free to come out of the closet. They they found them all, and this is obviously when the internet was on the rise, and, and people were starting to connect uh, with each other and find each other around the world and create these small groups of people who were doing all sorts of interesting things to create value for Lego. And what Lego really worked out was rather than kind of rejecting these people as not part of their brand, they started to open up their organization and did something we talk about a lot in the book, which is this skill of, of structuring for participation, of actually changing the structures of a company so as it makes it much more participatory. So they started to engage with their fan base. They started to build fan clubs. They started to build open innovation platforms. So the fans themselves could actually make the next Lego sets. One, one story we researched was a story of, uh, of a woman who had been an affle, so she'd been an adult f- fan of Lego. She had never made a Lego set for anyone other than her husband, uh, but she'd learned about what Lego was doing to open up their brand, and, and she put together a, a kit of female scientists who had been very underrepresented in the Lego world. Uh, that got over 10,000 votes, was made into a kit, and, and is now available around the world. Uh, and Lego became one of the biggest brands in the world because they were very thoughtful about how to channel the energy of the crowd. And, and that's the message of this book, which is, we get confused that we can either have a lot of control or a lot of chaos. And actually in that middle ground, there's a set of new power skills where anyone from the local dentist or local activist to a big company can work out how to get the crowd going in the direction of the outcomes they're looking for. So let's stay on Lego for one more second there. Um, So the fans start to suggest things and then they get likes and upvotes and all those things online. I get that part. is it that that is then engaging so many people that they go and buy more Legos? Like, help me connect the dots to to revenue. So just look on, look right now on the, on the internet how much fan created content there is around the brand. Like one of the things we talk about in the book is this kind of participation scale, which is what are you inviting people to do? And and typically brands would just say buy my product. What Lego is doing is saying buy the product, create with the product, share with the product, create videos around the product, create fan websites around the product. There's this huge value creation network, none of which is on the Lego payroll, but it does all sorts of things for the company from marketing to sales to promotion. And that's the great skill of the 21st century, which is to mobilize those people off your payroll to do so much more than simply consume. Okay, and in in another part of the book, you guys talk about organizing picnics versus organizing 
pickets. So that's a fun turn of phrase. What does it mean? So we really contrast Uber and Lyft as two very different, they're both new power platforms. They, they understand this, this model, but they've got such different mindsets. So, you know, think of, uh, think of Uber where its own drivers have been unionizing against it. Uh, whereas uh, Lyft has been much more effective at cultivating its drivers and making them feel valued like they're part of a community. Uh, so, for example, Uber really re refused to allow its own drivers to communicate with each other sideways to form community, whereas Lyft encouraged that community and actually facilitated them to meet and have picnics with each other. And so actually, you know, the business models are almost identical. And, you know, the, the share of economic value that these that the drivers are getting is very similar. The difference is this cultivation of their new power communities, their, what we call their platform cultures. Do the old power guys still have the overwhelming majority of power uh, and could they snuff out new power? Yeah, I think really this, the, the, the story of our age is actually some of these new actors who have worked out how to keep the best of old power and get the best of new power. We think of them as kind of the co-opters, those people who have got all of the new power and pushed it in the direction that they seek. And so obviously there are platforms who are doing that very well, but there are also around the world these strongmen two of the kind of strongest poles of our time are the poles of the platforms like Facebook and, and the strongmen who are emerging around the world. And I think one of the, the kind of the, the clarion calls of the book is to say, in a world where there is much more participation, how do we ensure that people get a lot more powerful? And to do that, we need to make some changes both to the way we think about platforms and to the way we think about governments. Okay, so let's talk about uh, some of those bad guys for a second. Uh, and so... Uh, you guys write about the alt-right's intensity machine. First of all, what does that mean and, and then how does it work? So, you know, one of the things that we really point out in the book is that, you know, less than broad popularity, the currency of our age is really intensity. So people who are able to generate real passion and they often are doing that using these new power techniques that we lay out in the book. And unfortunately, the bad guys have, have really cottoned on to this. So if you think about the alt-right, Think about the way those pr primarily young men on, on Reddit and 4chan sort of fermented and created this little marketplace of ideas, of memes um, on those platforms that then seeped into social media and that people like Donald Trump then elevated and retweeted. So Trump created this sort of symbiotic relationship with, with the alt-right where, in a sense, they were his decentralized social media army. And he was the one who was empowering and elevating their voices. So that generates intensity because the people who are part of that have tons of agency. They can be really creative um, about spreading their hate, which is actually very similar to the story we told earlier about Aksa Mahmoud. So, you know, our argument in the book is that those on the side of the angels, the sorts of people who, who, who follow the Young Turks, you know, we need to get really good at this if we want to spread our values. Um, because the other side, particularly people who have no kind of moral constraints, um, are going to be very effective at these techniques. So well, that actually leads to two different really interesting things. So one is that uh, they get to be more uh, driven by the audience in a sense. And, and look, uh, we try to be as driven as, as possible by the audience and the Young Turks. I, I, I want the audience to realize they're the Young Turks. But, but if you do that on the left side, there will be some people who will say the wrong things and then we'll try to rein them in and go hey guys don't don't say that that's that's out of bounds etc right and we try really hard with that whereas the right or at least the alt right 
there are no bounds, so they don't care what anybody, in fact, they kind of like it that they're saying really threatening, outrageous, potentially illegal things. So does that give bad actors some, not all, but some advantage in this new power paradigm? Yeah, I think we, one of the things we were, we were in the UK recently and talking to some people involved in the momentum movement, which is working alongside the Labour Party on the left in, the, in, a, in an interesting way. And actually, they have exactly that dynamic going on now that they have this kind of decentralized social media army, which is supporting the party and doing all sorts of exciting and creative things in terms of creating memes and ideas that would never have come out of kind of party central. But it's also bringing about a whole series of issues which are, people are finding very unpalatable in terms of its pushing to the extremes. But I think the question ahead is, Anyone who is looking to shifting, shifting outcomes is going to need to develop these kinds of intensity machines around things that matter most. Uh, and where we want to shift the argument in the book is to start to say, okay, think about the climate scientists, think about the people who are health professionals, think about those who share enlightenment values. That kind of expertise and professionalism matters more than ever. But if we have those people who have all the right values and none of the right intensity, they just simply aren't going to win in an age which is going to be defined by who mobilizes best. So why does the intensity matter so much? So if one side has a 10 million people who are not that intense, and the other side has a million people who are super intense, if you're like if you're voting or it's they're buying stuff, shouldn't the 10 million win? Or or for some reason of this dynamic, is it that the one million wins? Well, ask Hillary Clinton. Or, or, or ask the NRA. Like in both cases, what we're seeing is like favorability in the case of Clinton, right? She was always having higher favorables than Trump. She just didn't have higher intensity. And with the NRA, you know, 90% of people believe in, in the kind of right gun control movements we would all, all think and support. But when it comes down to the moments those battles come about, they get out dialed and out activated by that 10% of people who are going to come down the side of the NRA. And, and these dynamics even extend to business. I was talking to a guy he runs a big media company the other day, and he was saying his lens has shifted completely from my job used to be to get as much scale as I could, as many millions of people. What he's now focused on is how can I get the right smaller millions of people who are much more intensively activated around my company, because that's where the value of my brand is headed next. So I, I get it, uh, because if you are more intense, you're more likely to take action. So an action is what matters, uh, whether it's voting or buying or or however it manifests itself in these different situations. So now let's talk about one more uh, strain of this um, political considerations here, because I mentioned a second part. The second part is uh, it appears that the Democrats, or at least as they're currently constituted in America, have another disadvantage here, which is that um, Trump enables and activates his base, the one that you guys mentioned, the doing the memes, the 4chan's, Right or wrong, moral or immoral, etc. But he he listens to them and gives them power, and they give power back to him. Whereas the Democrats never listen to their base, and like so. For example, Black Lives Matter. That's a new power group. Uh, they've gotten a tremendous amount of attention, uh, and, they, and they're fighting for all the right issues. But the problem is, on the side of actual power, people who pass bills, etc., they don't have any actual allies. So then, to me, it looks like they've run into a dead end because of that. So do you need someone in old power, like in this case it would be the Democratic Party, to actually do the things that you, you're pushing them to do and all this intensity is going towards? Yeah, I mean, the, the dynamic we describe in the book is that you, in these situations you need what we call relay. Relay between old power and new power. So you think about um, you know, the Parkland kids. They've got this extraordinary new power repertoire. 
they've really broken through in a way that shows this extraordinary capability, they're going to need to form alliances with old power institutions to push the salience and energy they've created into the halls of power and ultimately into policy change. I don't think that means they should become an institution themselves because their power is in being leaderful, it's in being decentralized, it's in that search, right? But they do need to form those alliances. So we want to see more of those relays. So the Black Lives Matter movement is, is a movement that we study in the book and we spoke uh, with Alicia Garza, the co-founder, and I think they're thinking very actively about that question. And we need these, in, on the progressive side, we just need these ecosystems to exist where the kind of movement actors are actually talking to and coordinating with the party and the institutions so that we can win. But as you say, right now, they're kind of in two camps. Yeah, and look, I, I talking to you guys, it becomes even clearer that what new power has to do in the case of the Democratic Party is replace old power. <laughs> because um, those guys, they're not, they're not gonna listen. They just don't, it's not in their DNA. They don't believe in people. And that's why they've lost touch and are considered the party of elites, even though the Republicans represent the donors more, right? So uh, I think they, they just gotta get replaced. And that's the intensity that it is needed yeah. to do the voting and for new power to win over old power. Um, so, so I understand all that. But we have about five minutes left, so I wanna do a fun uh, test case with you guys. So uh, I was gonna say pick a random company, but I decided why not pick our company, okay? <laughs> so. If the Young Turks wanted to use new power, and we do, um, if you were here, and of course it's much more complex and you'd have to see the inner workings of the company, I understand that, but we're having fun. So let's just do this exercise. What would you suggest as a way of activating new power for a company like us? Well, uh, one of the concepts in the book that we describe, particularly for people who are starting businesses or running things that they need essentially to they're selling stuff, um, or they're promoting stuff, is this concept of the participation premium. And so we sort of studied what made things take off. Um, and, you know, media companies get sticky, people who are running crowdfunding campaigns. There were three elements. You know, one was this higher sense of purpose. I think you guys have that. The people who, you know, who, who, who watch you clearly understand this kind of sense of purpose that you embody and the, the values you stand for. The second thing is obviously they need to get something of value in return. You know, you're delivering the content. But the third element is participation. And I think this is where a lot of people fall down, which is that how do you really take your viewership seriously as a community? How can you invest them much more deeply um, into the work that you do? How can you make them protagonists? How can they appear inside the programming? How can they make contributions to the priorities that you set? Um, how can they make your work better? How can they do your research for you? Um, we study a, a really fascinating media company in the Netherlands called De Correspondent that basically crowdfunded its way. It raised about 2 million euros in crowdfunding, and it just has this huge subscriber base, and it really treats them as protagonists. It does really subtle things like, you know, the profile, you, the, the picture of the commenter, you can actually put your whole biography uh, in, in, into De Correspondent as a commenter and explain your expertise. And no article starts into Correspondent without the journalist first briefing the audience and asking them for input. So let's take their example because they already, that's more interesting because they already did it. Um, so um, what did that lead to? Did it lead to more subscriptions for them? Did it lead to more viewers? Yeah, fill that out for us. You know, so another interesting example is actually The Guardian. If you look at what The Guardian's doing now, um, they've actually thought about their journalism, you know, hundreds of years old. 
But they're now thinking about a bunch of interesting things. One is more participatory journalism. So the journalism itself has opportunities to participate throughout articles. Two, they're doing things like they're actually crowdsourcing. They have a database of police killings around the US, which has been crowdsourced by their readers. So they're asking people to actually be witnesses and participants. And three, what they're beginning to do now is actually create this kind of very dynamic membership base, which builds on the intensity they have as a brand. And rather than simply saying to people, we want you to subscribe, they're saying we want people to help promote and defend our values. And they're making more money now from their members than they are in some cases from their advertisers. And, and all of these things, and if you're looking for a prescription for Young Turks, all of these things are small acts of participation. It's about finding new ways to invite people to engage with your brand. And to do that well, and we tell these stories in the book, it's not like the organization who gets lucky with an ice bucket challenge once in a while. It's an organization who day after day after day tries to refine a set of skills that we all need to learn, which are these skills to mobilize in a new power world. And to this point about intensity, those people have been loyal. They, they renew, in the case of De Correspondent, they keep renewing, they have an extraordinary renewal rate. Um, and the, you know, they've got this real base of people who will be with them even through the hard times. So a minute left. Uh, at the end of the day, does new power inevitably win uh, and we have more of a participatory process or could old power, the top down, uh, reassert itself? So I think that's the question of our times. And I think we, we definitely believe there's going to be a world of more participation. We're all going to be engaged more in these delightful platforms and these delightful experiences. The question is, who shapes that participation? Will it be the people who co-opt it and usurp it and take it away from us? Or will we work out more structural ways for organizations and individuals to take that participation and use it to genuinely make all of us more powerful? And that's the ultimate mission of the book. All right, wonderful. Uh, everybody check out New Power, how power works in our hyper-connected world and how to make it work for you. Uh, fascinating conversation. Jeremy and Henry, thank you so much for joining thank us. You. Thank, thank you. Here. It's been terrific.